Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are talking about Everything is Fucked by Mark Manson, a book about hope. Mark Manson, the author of The Meteoric Success, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, follows it up with Everything is Fucked. Um, I think there's going to be a few F-bombs in this episode if you haven't realized already, just judging by the title. Yeah, he drops the F-bombs and I think that's a big factor of the success. You know, you're walking through the bookstore and you see the big F-bomb just sitting there. It kind of draws you to it, a little bit of a purple cow. It definitely is. And this is his his obviously follow-up book to the super, super, super successful one. And this, he talks about the importance of having hope and how sort of that plays into our lives. Just as a way to frame the book, Manson talks about how every day, you know, you go and get your morning coffee and someone just writes your name on it and it's just your name there and they say, yep, well done, have a nice day and then you're off and having your coffee. The type of barista that Manson would be is quite different. What Manson would write is, one day you and everyone you love will die and beyond a small group of people for an extremely brief period of time, little of what you say or do will even matter. This is the uncomfortable truth of life and everything you think or do is but an elaborate avoidance of this. We are inconsequential cosmic dust, bumming and milling around on a tiny blue speck. We imagine our own importance, we invent our purpose, we are nothing. Go and enjoy your fucking coffee. <laughs> Man, imagine if you cop that on your morning coffee. Yeah, it'd really slap you up. <laughs> That'd be a wake Slap up. you up more than the caffeine, I'd say. <laughs> but he says that that is the uncomfortable truth of life. Everyone's going to die and pretty much no one matters. Pretty much everything you do is futile and in the grand scheme of things, it has absolutely no relevance and no importance. And that's the uncomfortable truth of life. We don't like to think about it. We like to do whatever we can to avoid it, but that's what it is. Yeah. If you look at the infinite expanse of space and time and how big the universe is and how little our time is here, the universe doesn't really give a shit whether your mother's hip replacement goes well or your kids attend college or how your job interview goes tomorrow, it really amounts to nothing. Of course, we care and we try to desperately convince ourselves that because we care, it must have some kind of greater cosmic meaning behind it. We feel that you know, because deep down we need this sense of importance in order to avoid the uncomfortable truth and we project this sense of importance onto the world around us because it gives us hope. So that's what he talks about here is that the book is all about trying to find some kind of hope even though we're pretty much useless. We, not, we need to feel some kind of hope in order to drive us forward. Yeah, it's the belief that we're all here for a reason and nothing is just a simple coincidence and everyone matters because all our actions affect somebody somewhere down along the chain. And if we can just him- simply help one person, then basically our time here was worth it. So this is hope and this is the story that we inject into our brain that spins us to convince that you know, it's worth getting up out of bed and facing the day every morning. So, hope gives us a reason to go on living and he says that hopelessness, the opposite of having hope, hopelessness is the root of anxiety, mental illness and depression. He says it's the source of all misery, all addictions, any chronic anxiety is a crisis of hope. It's this fear of a failed future. He's saying that this hopelessness is really what fucks up a lot of people. So, we're going to stare down this uncomfortable truth of life that you're really just a piece of shit, cosmic piece (laughs) of shit on the side of the cosmic road. But, you know, from there, we can actually start building the case for hope. So, a hope that can bring us all together rather than tear us apart. It's robust and powerful and carry with us on to the end of your days. For Manson, his book, this book is his source of hope. For another person, 
it might be raising the kids, it might be the environment and climate change, it might be making a whole shitload of cash to buy a huge boat or to simply just improve your, your, your golf swing. Yeah, we all need some kind of hope that drives us forward, some reason for getting out of bed, some reason to believe that there's this narrative inside our head that we are important, there is something out there that we need to do. And what he says is there's been a lot of progress recently, but he calls it actually the paradox of progress, is that we're living in this time that materially things are arguably better than ever before, but we seem to be losing our minds thinking that the world is some giant toilet bowl ready to be flushed. You know, even though things are better than they've ever been, we feel like the world's going to absolute hell. We reviewed Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness, and I think Steve Pinker at some stage will get around his book, Better Angels of Our Nature. But it's really unequivocal that the progress of nature is moving in the right direction. We're more educated than ever. Violence is on the way down. Racism, sexism, discrimination and violence against women, they're really at the lowest point in history. Half the planet has access to the internet. Extreme poverty is at an all-time low. So that's kind of the good news, that all of these good things are on the way up, all these bad things are on the way down. It feels like we're at this best point in history. But perplexingly, at the same time, there are some other surprising statistics. And that's that in the USA specifically, and I'm sure the world more broadly, symptoms of depression and anxiety are on this wild upswing. Yes, this weird paradox that even though things are seemingly getting so much better, the more that we all collectively despair. So it can be summed up in one fact, the wealthier and safer that you're living, the more likely you are to commit suicide which is very weird because it's these things that we're striving for, you know, uh, to be more wealthy and healthy and and safe. But as we strive for these things, that we're actually going to be more likely to be depressed. So that's a real weird paradox, Mm. which is a bit of a pain in the ass. It really is a paradox. And he says that the better the world gets, the more we have to lose. And the more we have to lose, the less we have to hope for. So because everything is getting better, unfortunately, our hope is sort of deteriorating because we feel like, you know, we've improved so much. How much more could we improve? And we feel like, well, we've got all this good stuff now. We could lose it. And that leads to that deteriorating hope or an increasing sense of hopelessness. And that's sort of causing us to to cop it. Even though everything's so good, individually, maybe we don't feel so good. Absolutely not. So that's the uncomfortable truth of life. Uh, so the, uh, there is this overwhelming sense of hopelessness around the world. The rest of the book, we're going to try and understand how we can inject a little bit more hope in our life in terms of understanding the two brains that you know a lot of authors just go and read Danny Kahneman and just rip it into their book somehow. Uh, adult values, how we can warp our perception in the right way and the idea of fake freedom versus real freedom. So he says that there's a classic assumption that's pretty much perpetuated itself throughout all of uh, psychology and philosophy. And he says this classic assumption is that we have a sense of self-control. And this self-control is exactly what we need to feel hope. You know, we feel hope because we feel like we can control things, which means we can change things, which means we can improve, which means we can get better, which means obviously that's where that sense of hope comes from. We usually judge people based on this classic assumption. So if, if someone's walking down the street and they're obese and they're huge, you kind of it's kind of ridiculed and shamed because you just think their obesity is simply just a failure of their own self-control. They know that they should go to the gym and be thin and they rationally know what the things they need to eat and everything. And because they know that, we on the outside, we just assume that something must be weirdly wrong with this, this chubby person. 
Yeah, smokers, drug addicts, criminals, they all get the same treatment. We feel that because we feel that there should be some kind of self-control, we just think that this person who is doing things wrong, we just view them as undisciplined, unruly, malicious. We feel like they lack some kind of ability, whether that's to subjugate their feelings, whether they're weak-willed, or maybe they're just plain fucked up. And he says that, you know, you can even extrapolate this to depressed and suicidal people. He says that we tell them that their inability to create hope and meaning in their life is kind of their fault. You know, we feel like they, we should have some kind of self-control and we, we look down on people who aren't able to harness that self-control. And then the flip side of this, we celebrate the people who beat their emotions into submission. You know, they get up early. They're working 12-hour days at their job. They're running marathons and triathlons and they're the leaders and they're absolutely robotic in the efficiency. Manson says we're collectively getting hard-ons mm. for, for this type of people, which, you know, I think we all get a bit of a hard-on when, um, yeah, when we come across such a person. So, we often develop this kind of false belief that we need to change who we are. We think if we can't achieve a goal, if we can't get a promotion, if we can't lose weight, then it signifies some kind of internal deficiency. So, in order to maintain our hope, we must change ourselves, we must become someone different and we feel like we have this sense of self-control. This is all within our control. We can achieve these things if we just try a little harder. So, we all want to believe that we can change ourselves and it's just simply just knowing what to change. But he uses the analogy of a consciousness card to show who really is control um, on this road of us trying to change ourselves for the better. So, say you're driving on the road in your consciousness car, there's on-ramps and off-ramps and turns and intersections. These are the decisions that you need to make while you're driving. And as you're driving along, there are two travelers. There's the two parts of the brain. One he calls the thinking brain and one he calls the feeling brain. And the thinking brain is the things like conscious thought, your ability to make calculations, your ability to reason through various options and to express ideas through language. Whereas your feeling brain represents your emotions, your impulses, your intuition, your instincts. And so, what we think is happening is that we think our thinking brain is the driver of this car and the feeling brain is this passenger who's sitting in the side and just randomly every now and then shouts out where it wants to go. But we think that our thinking brain is in control. Sometimes it might uh, become the victim of the feeling brain and take a wrong turn, but ultimately we can steer back on course. Yeah, we'll look at the drug addict who's you know, shooting up on the side of the road and judge with the assumption that it is the thinking brain driving the car, but it's really, this person's got no control because it's the feeling and the emotional brain that's driving this person's car. Yeah, our car, our car doesn't work the way we think it does. It's actually that the feeling brain is driving the consciousness car and all the thinking brain is doing is sitting in the passenger seat with a map. So, the, the thinking brain feels really smart. It feels like it's the hero. It's got the map of the world. It's, under, it's built up an understanding over time of what the world looks like and what sort of routes you should be taking. But really, it's at the whim of the feeling brain. The feeling brain has got the wheel. The feeling brain can get steered off course by reacting emotionally to things because it's just impulsive and instinctive. The thinking brain here, it's a supporting character who imagines herself to be the hero. So, the thinking brain assumes that she's in control but it definitely isn't the case. And this is actually the thing that gives us hope. We think that we are in full control of our actions, but really we're actually at the whims of the feeling brain. So in one sense, we're actually kind of fucked. Yeah, this is the the big problem, I guess, the fundamental problem with this idea of self-control and kind of the fundamental problem of hope is that the feeling brain is really untrained. It's sort of 
adopted poor value judgments over time and because it's just reacting to the things around it, we don't have the self-control that we feel like we should have. You've probably heard this idea come up in the past on the podcast in Jonathan Haidt's book, Happiness Hypothesis, which is referenced in Chip and Dan's Heath's book, Switch. They talk about the elephant and the rider in that the elephant is the feelings and the rider is the thinking. The rider can try as much as it can to guide the elephant, but ultimately the elephant, which is the feelings, is too strong and too big and sometimes it can just overpower the rider. Or of course, more recently, system one, system two, system one, fast thinking, system two, slow thinking. We think that with slow thinking, we're intelligent and rational, but really system one takes over whenever it can. Manson in the book talks about situations where we all get slapped up in different ways of life and you know, there's different ways people handle these things. But the good news is that some of these bad things that can happen to you can actually improve you. So in the darkest times, there's always little glimmers of hope. Unfortunately, when we're children, we don't really see this. All we see when we're children is just pleasure and pain. Like if you touch a hot stove, you quickly learn that there's pain and that you don't want to do that again. Or if you stand on your tippy toes and get a jar of ice cream out of the freezer and hoe into that, then uh, you feel a bit of pleasure in the short term at least until your mum catches you as uh, Manson talks about in the book. But all we're doing when we're children is we're being fully driven by pleasure. All we're doing is trying to avoid avoid pain and seek pleasure. And when we're children, that's all we can do and that's the only sort of control we have over ourselves. Then we grow up a little and then we move into adolescence. Manson says it's not too much different from children. We just have a different way of achieving the same thing, which again is going towards pleasure and avoiding pain. But here it might be in the form of, say, going after social status. So you might be thinking, if I wear this, will it make me look cool if I talk like that? Will that... (laughs) (laughs) Not cool, man. Will people like me? That was pretty cool. But nothing is done really for its own sake. Everything is a calculated transaction, usually out the fear of negative repercussions. So basically, everything is a means to a pleasurable end. What we're starting to do is we're starting to learn a few things about the world around us and we're starting to form some principles. So, you know, we say that we need to take care around dangerous things so we don't get hurt. We need to, we learn to be honest so that if, you know, maybe we get caught in a lie one time and people get pissed off, we know that lying is a bad thing. We learn that, you know, sharing with people is good. That means they'll share back with you. We're starting to form some of these general principles that emerge. So, as we grow up, as we become adults, we start to rely less on the pleasure and more on the principles. If we can stay true to our principles, it's a far better way of acting. Now, a lot of people around the world are still in this adolescent phase, paradoxically, even in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and right until the end and when they cark it. But we need to move in to become an, an adult, and this is acting in a very different way. So an adolescent, for example, might say she values honesty only because she has learned it produces good results. Mm. But an adult will be honest as the end in itself, regardless of the cost that comes from acting in certain ways. Yeah, so that's sort of the three phases. So a child is just seeking pleasure. An adolescent is seeking pleasure through principles, so they be honest because they get rewarded at the end, whereas an adult is just going for the principle itself. So just being honest for the sake of being honest, regardless of the pleasure. So truly adult values, when you are living these values, even though that you can get slapped up, you can actually benefit a lot from the unexpected and grow from living in these values. For example, the more fucked up a relationship gets, the more useful honesty becomes. So 
If you're brutal in terms of your honesty in a relationship, yes, there's going to be a bit of pain, but over the long term, it's anti-fragile and your relationship actually benefits and that's what living as an adult is. Yeah, anti-fragile. He had a big chunk, like five or six pages all on anti-fragile. It was a good part of the book saying that you know some of these truly important principles that we've developed in adulthood, they are anti-fragile, like say building courage. If the world gets terrifying and everything seems to be fucked up around you, it takes more and more courage and it becomes more important to summon that courage. So that is anti-fragile. Yeah, I think that's good advice. So by growing up and becoming more virtuous, by making the simple decision in each moment to treat ourselves and others as ends, not merely as means. So what this means is be honest, don't distract or harm yourself, don't shirk responsibility or succumb to fear, love openly and fearlessly because there's really no heaven or hell coming around in the future. It basically just comes down to the choices you're making in the moment. So that was all about you know being an adult, taking on these adult principles rather than just trying to seek pleasure. And so the next section he talks about is all about perceptions and how the way that we view the world tends to warp sort of, and the way that we perceive things tends to warp how we view reality. He talks about this study which he refers to as sort of the the blue dot effect, which was, I think it was called the prevalence. What was the actual word for it? Don't know. Don't know. We'll call it the blue dot effect. And so the study was where there's a, a, a scientist sort of, there was a, black, a blank screen and a dot showed up and the dot was either blue or purple. And if you saw a blue dot, you had to hit blue. And if you saw a purple dot, you had to hit not blue on the keyboard. At the start of the study, uh, they showed mostly blue dots, you know, like 80, 90% blue dots. So you're hitting blue a lot and you weren't hitting bl- not blue so much. You had to do a thousand of these things. And sort of from towards the back end, they started not showing blue at all. They started showing the majority of dots being purple or shades of purple. And what the weird thing was, was that we started, was that people started hitting blue when things were not blue. So, because you're expecting to see so many blue dots and you started just seeing a whole bunch of purples, your mind sort of warped it to start to see more blues even though they weren't blue. In a similar vein, researchers extended this study but to people's faces. So, they showed a mixture of threatening, friendly, neutral, loving and what the participants had to do was either knock threatening or non-threatening. Initially, a large number of threatening faces were shown and all of these were correctly identified as threatening. But later, they turned down the amount of threatening faces going on the screen, showed more happy and loving faces. But people made a lot more errors. They started calling neutral expressions threatening. So, it's kind of weird that because we're expecting to see something, even though we're seeing less of it, our brain warps to show us that it's still there. And I think to extrapolate this to you know, some real-world implications because you're not just going to be looking at, at blue dots on a screen, if we're expecting there to be war and famine and conflict and all these bad things going on around the world, that's what we're expecting. If we're seeing less of it because the world is getting better, we're actually still going to... Our, our brain is still going to warp things to show us that things are bad. So because we're looking for threats, we're actually going to see more threats. So, this has big implications on how you design your day. Whatever stimuli you inject into your brain is going to shape your expectations and then shape actually what you see in the world. And this is one of the reasons why there could be very big practical value in not watching the news or reading some 
forms of media and so forth because what it can do, it can shape your, it can change what your expectations are of the world and actually shape your perception, which will actually physically warp your whole entire reality. Development psychology has said that protecting people from their problems and protecting people from adversity and protecting people from bad things doesn't actually make them happy or more secure. It actually makes them more insecure. Sheltering people from the bad things in the world might seem like a good idea, but uh, there's been a lot of findings and a lot of books coming out recently that because we've been sheltered, because we've been coddled, it's actually fucking people up. So, what we've covered up until this point is all about the two brains the importance of adult values, uh, how perception warps reality. Now we're going to end the end this episode talking about the difference between fake freedom and versus real freedom. Fake freedom is the idea that we all want a whole bunch of things. You know, we want to sit on the couch. We feel like sitting on the couch and watching TV is is a form of freedom because it means that you know we don't have to do something else. We don't have to work hard. We don't have to exercise. We don't have to do our chores. It feels like sitting on the couch and watching TV is a kind of freedom. Or you know, going for going on a holiday to the beach, that's a kind of freedom as well. We feel like being able to choose what we do when we do it. Uh, and being able to go on holidays and sit on the couch, we get a sense of freedom out of that or we get a feeling of freedom. But Manson says that that's not real freedom, that's fake freedom. Real freedom actually comes from sacrifice and choosing what to give up. So, it's really the only one true form of freedom. The only ethical form of freedom is through actually self-limitation. So, you might have this impulse to go there and sit on the couch, but self-limitation, you you deny yourself that pleasure in that one experience to actually go to the gym and over time, that's going to generate the real freedom. Yeah, Manson calls things diversions. So, the diversion, if, if we feel some kind of pain, we want to divert that pain and put it off and that's when we go to fake freedom. That's when we go sit on the couch. That's when we go scroll, scroll through social media. That's when we go and eat a cheeseburger and ice cream. That's why we go smoke a cigarette to divert the, the pain of stress. Uh, But really, the real freedom comes from copying a little bit of pain up front to get the real freedom later. So, you know, going to the gym or exercising every day, there is some kind of sacrifice there because it is painful in the moment, you know, you know, pumping, pumping iron, going for long runs, going for a swim. It's not, it doesn't feel that good in the moment, but you get the real freedom later on because you are healthy, because you are mobile, because you are able to have a lot of physical freedom later on. So, to become truly free, you need to choose the limitations that you're going to impose on yourself and these limitations will actually free you because they're going to liberate your time, your attention and your power of choice. If you think of this self-denial, it's, it's kind of paradoxical, you know, you know, putting off that cheeseburger so you can be free later, sacrificing a bit of time and having this strong work ethic even though it might be painful in the short term, it gives you the power and the freedom to pursue different job opportunities or steer your career trajectory in the future. Or, you know, the willingness to engage in conflict with people in conversations means you're freer to talk to more people, means you're able to understand people better. Sacrificing a little bit of comfort in the short term gives you far better freedom later. I think we're all constantly drawn to these two different roads and we can always make the decision. For me personally, you know, there's some weekends or most weekends even, there's something just whispering in my ear, this part of fake freedom that says, nah, don't worry about fucking working don't worry about going and recording and doing your podcast and all that stuff. Just go out there and, you know, take your money out of shares and go on a big bender for three days. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> there's always that part whispering in your ear, right? To go out there and just say fuck it, and and but that's the fake freedom that pulling us. And I think we need to acknowledge that and understand that it it, it is the sacrifices that is actually going to give you that real good freedom in in the very long run. Definitely, man. Manson says that fake freedom puts us on this treadmill towards chasing more, whereas real freedom is a conscious decision to live with less. Fake freedom is addictive in that no matter how much you have, you always feel like you don't have enough, whereas real freedom is repetitive, predictable, and maybe sometimes dull. And then fake freedom is seeing the world as an endless series of transactions and bargains so that you feel like you're winning, whereas real freedom is seeing the world unconditionally and just realizing that the world is what it is and the true victory comes from victory over your own desires.